0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. slash Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Oficial.
2: Marca Mesut Özil. Alexis, vaya mano y el Rey This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another ArsCast Extra as always with James from Gunnar Blog. James, it is morning.
1: It is morning, isn't mm. it? Yep. There's it no It was night and now it's morning.
2: Yeah, no refuting the fact that it is now. Morning. And we are recording and we are going to uh, delve deep into the issues that uh, involve this football club uh, that we support. And it's making my heart hurt even thinking of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, Saturday. Against Southampton. It, mm. I mean, I think we signed off our last podcast together almost saying, surely. I felt the word that was used a lot was surely. Surely it will be better. Surely we will get this win yeah. at last. Um, and maybe we were naive in that belief.
2: Maybe so. I texted you afterwards saying, I. Thought it might be bad, but I didn't think it would be as bad as it was, and it was no. bad from a footballing point of view. But there were other things that happened during the day uh, and in the game, and in the context of the game, which which also felt really bad. So we'll we'll touch on those, and that's sort of about the reaction to the result and the way that you know we as fans are supposed to feel, and the way that certainly I felt um, towards the end of the game and, and and all that. But we'll we'll delve into that in a little bit. But let's for what it's worth talk about the talk about the match and the way we set up and you know this is a game that Unai Emery knew he had to win he he's aware he's under a great deal of pressure he's playing a team that are 19th or maybe they were bottom of the table when when the game began I can't quite remember but you know they're down there they've only mm-hmm. won two games all season he played a back 3 or a back 5 however you mm-hmm. want to look at it which you know, we've made the point before in itself doesn't have to be um, a defensive setup, but the way that Unai Emery uses it almost always is, you know, the great Barcelona teams will play a 3-4-3. You can't say playing three at the back is defensive, you know, because, mm. of, because of what they do and how they do it. But with Emery, it's always, almost always based out of fear. And that's what it felt like.
1: Yeah, I even think more recently in Arsenal history under Arsene Wenger, when we played a kind of 3-4-3, that was more adventurous when we had kind of Ozil and Alexis off of a striker. Mm. Um, You know, theoretically, the idea of having wing-backs bombing on and sort of stationed on the halfway line, getting forward and, you know... Ozil behind the strikers, there was stuff in that theoretically to like, but in practice, it just never plays out like that for Unai Emery. And I do think when you look at him and you try and pinpoint sort of what it is about his Arsenal teams that is so problematic, you know, it is that inherent caution and it is that almost fear, I suppose, of our defensive vulnerability. It's like we haven't really been able to correct that vulnerability in any uh, in any significant way. And the only yeah. way he seems to be able to think of doing it is by padding, by putting more numbers into that central area. You know, when you when you sort of take a long, widescreen shot of any Arsenal match, the amount of sort of centre-halves and full-backs and defensive midfielders kind of packed into the width of the penalty area in our own half is always pretty striking, isn't it? It feels like it's about six or seven players at any one time.
2: Mm. And I think before the game, you got an idea of what he was thinking and how, how sort of into his shell he has gone in terms of fear of the opposition when he's talking about Southampton as a team, you know, he's right to say they're better away from home than at home because they've only got a single point at home, but, but seven points on the road, which doesn't make them, you know, harm globetrotters or anything like it. But he was talking as if we were going to be playing a, you know, a team that were rampant. Um, and I think there was something interesting in what Aubameyang said after the game, um, you know, how we expected that this is how Southampton would play. Um, it's almost self-defeating. You know, that the fear that Emery has in terms of how he sets up his team is transmitted to the players, and they become afraid of teams that they shouldn't be afraid of, or that mm-hmm. Arsenal Football Club shouldn't be afraid of. So I think it all just, you know, when we look at this 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 stew that, that he's got bubbling, um, it's just based around Emery's own inner terror of doing anything that might be dare I say proactive or protagonistic because all the time he is reacting to what he feels uh, the threat of the opposition is going to be.
1: Yeah and the more under pressure he is in some ways the more kind of self-defeating it becomes because the more he's inclined to think well I mustn't lose this game you know And, and so those kind of Flaws become exacerbated. Um, I think you saw that even in the second half. You know, Arsenal did go a bit more attacking. I know we'll come back to the beginning in a minute, but while I think of it, there was a moment in the second half where we had a pretty good attack. It might have been the one where Pepe struck the bar. Mm. And then Southampton broke on us and it was the most animated I saw Emery in the whole game because as they broke, suddenly this figure had been quite sort of subdued throughout the game, sort of burst into life and was desperately trying to claw his own players back into their half, you know, and sort of point, you know, get back, get back. And I think you saw just in that flicker, the kind of fear that underpins a lot of these decisions. Robbie Fowler was on Sky this weekend talking to Gary Neville about playing under Gerard Houllier. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, you know, Houllier used to give us so much preparation about the opposition that by the time the game came around, whoever it was, you sort of found yourself thinking, God, these guys are actually pretty good. And even if they sort of weren't, uh, it sort of became self-defeating, you know, that the more you focus on an opposition... The kind of bigger you hype them up in your mind, and it
2: yeah. almost impedes your confidence. Absolutely. Like if your manager is telling you time and time again that the opposition are dangerous and you should be worried about everything that they do, of course. I mean, I don't want to bring up the Granit Xhaka scared thing again, but that's kind of that's kind of what it comes to. You know, that's the that's the mindset that gets into the players, and you can see in the way they play. You know, there's no confidence going forward, and um, yeah, it. it, it it, it's just, I, I don't know if it's even worth discussing in any great level because, um, you know, I don't know how much longer this can go on or how long it should be allowed to go on, but that, that those are things we'll come to again. Look, they scored first, as mm. opposition teams do, but they scored first having had maybe four or five attempts in the opening 10 minutes. Mm. Um, caught on a quick free kick. Do we need to, you know, analyse the goal in any way? Well
1: it's not great i've got to say like it's a well taken free kick but i have watched it back a couple of times and i know that we're sort of into this place of you know we can't really analyze individual players but i think sort of in the interest of fairness like some of these players are are really underperforming and i do understand there are a lot of outside factors there but in that particular instance i thought the way chambers and louise completely turn their back on the play at the award of the free kick. It's just so... Uh, sort of schoolboy.
2: Yeah. Know I mean? Yeah, I think, yeah, we could, have, we could have reacted better. And I think it's to do with organisation. It's awareness. It's even, you know, we've seen it in the past, haven't we, with stuff like throw-ins or short corners. You know, all of a sudden, the opposition have a corner and we trot into what we think they're going to do. They're just going to, like, bang the ball into the box... And they take a short corner and we've got like one guy out there and they bypass us. We've seen it lots of times. Like there's this lack of awareness that, that the opposition might um, have some variety to the mm-hmm. way that they play. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're right to, to talk about how, um, yeah, we, we could have done better on the goal. Our first shot was Lacazette's goal. Mm-hmm. That was our first shot. Um, so it was efficient, I guess, if we're looking for some positives on the day.
1: Yeah. (laughs) What minute did that come in? I forget. About
2: the 18th minute, I think. Right. Um, Because I remember writing in the, literally, I think I wrote in the live blog, Arsenal haven't had a shot yet. Um, And then, um, let's see. Yeah, 17th minute, Arsenal yet to have a shot. 18th minute, goal! Um, You need
1: to write that more
2: often. Yeah. Ideally. Yeah, I should have written that. Well, (laughs) it, it only works once per game. Okay. Arsenal yet to have two shots. <laughs> See how that goes. Um, I'm trying to remember the goal. Um, uh,
1: so it was like a. Uh, it was actually an okay ish move. Uh, Gunduzi into Erzl. Erzl. Oh, it was, yeah. Pantini, it, yeah. I think. And then Aubameyang had a shot that was blocked, I think. And mm-hmm. then it fell to Lacazette and a, a decent finish at the
2: near post. He's good at that, isn't he, on the turn with his back to goal, just finding. Um, Either the precision or finding the the power to to get the ball in. Um, So 1-1 after 18 minutes. And um, I'm just trying to think, was there anything of of real note in the first half beyond the fact that Southampton had uh, more shots than we did? I don't know that we had much in the way of goal-scoring opportunities. No, I
1: mean, I mean, it was you know sufficiently bad for there to be a halftime change, which I think tells you about how the game was kind of drifting in that in that last twenty minutes mm. of the first half.
2: So we did make a halftime change. I thought uh, Chambers was in some ways unlucky to be the the central defender who was sacrificed um, mm. for that change because Socrates had had a very iffy first half. And continued um, with a very iffy second half as well. So I, I felt a little bit for Chambers there, but he brought Pepe on, went to a bank four, and I think for the first probably 10, 15 minutes of the half, we were we were definitely better. You know, I know again we're talking about this as being something you know improving from a low bar. But it it looked better and the football was better. And there were some moments, you know, there was a break, wasn't there, where Pepe could have played the ball in. There was a chance for Aubameyang, which was a little bit fortunate that it fell for him the way that it did. A a clearance rebounded off somebody. Um, Hmm. So there were moments. uh, Pepe hit the bar, of course. um, So there were moments in that that spell after halftime. But, you know, it was impossible to look at it and just think, why didn't why didn't you start like that? I know Pepe was late back, didn't he mention that about Pepe that yes. he was he was late back? So he only may, late, maybe you yeah. don't start Pepe, but you've got Rhys Nelson and you've got um Martinelli. Martinelli, you know, who who can't have done any more in his uh in his other games to to um to be given a chance in the Premier League, and particularly for a game that you need to win, you know?
1: Mm-mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean I haven't seen a replay back of that uh, Pepe opportunity where he went for the pass rather than the shot. Was that a case of him making the wrong decision or was it just bad execution?
2: Bad execution, if. Yeah, I would say bad execution. I'll bring it up here again. Let me just see if I can find it on my.
1: Yeah, because I, I agree. I mean, I saw a lot of people afterwards saying he had, should have taken the shot on. I don't have a brilliant view on behind that goal, but for me, it looked like a pass was. He had Erzl in support, didn't he?
2: Yeah, or is, uh, uh, just outside him, and he should have. He should have made a better pass. Uh, let me have a look at it here.
1: It, it speaks volumes. I saw um, Stuart McFarlane was stationed down in that corner and Shkodro Mustafi was warming up there. And afterwards, he uh, very clearly sort of said to Stu, why didn't he shoot? And he sort of made like a shoot gesture with his hand. But, oh uh, my
2: goodness. Yeah, it yeah. was it was, uh, it was was a bad pass. He could have had a shot as well. He could have taken it on, particularly as it was on his left foot, you know. Um and then you know, almost immediately, Southampton went up the other end and and had a had a chance. Yeah, like he should have gone on. Oh, he should have had a shot. Yeah, he should have either that played have it earlier or I had a shot. Where
1: yeah. where Emery, you know, kind of was spinning out on the touchline and mm. uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not exactly sure, but yeah, I mean, look, that was a good chance. Obviously, he hit the bar. I'd sort of did the right thing there, got it down into into the ground, but just too much really. Came up, hit the bar. And then, uh, yeah, I would agree with you. That sort of 50 minutes after half-time, it was a little bit better. And the crowd were kind of energised by it. They were pleased to see Pepe on the field. I felt like Lacazette and Aubameyang sort of came to life a little bit and mm. was glad of a bit more support.
2: Yeah, I mean, you were there. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, the, the, the Arsenal fans have gotten... I'm just looking at the chance here for Pepe. Oh, he's unlucky there, in fairness. Um... you know, the Arsenal fans have gotten a lot of stick lately for being crap fans and for being, you know, whatever. Mm. But it felt to me like even though things weren't going particularly great, the crowd did its best to rouse the team at times. You know, there was um, a lot of come on Arsenal um, when things weren't quite right during that second half. And uh, I think the crowd did their bit, to be honest just curious yeah. what you think it,
1: it, i mean it was flat in the ground for for, for big chunks of the game yeah. and i do understand that you know the the atmosphere wasn't brilliant and arsenal went behind pretty early you know that that does impinge on the atmosphere uh but when they did go behind there were people around me i was sort of in the in the north bank lower uh, sort of who just started chants of you know come on Arsenal and we love you Arsenal we do I even heard which I haven't heard that chant again for quite a long time which is bizarre because it's a staple really but hasn't been that present this season and uh, in those moments I felt real pride actually I think that you know the, the fans who cheer their team on sort of irrespective of what's going on, even in adversity, there is something very admirable about that. And that's not intended as a criticism of people who don't or people who want to boo or whatever Mm. they want to do. But, you know, in those moments, I think that's where supporters sort of really show their mettle. And I think I would agree with you that for the most part, Arsenal fans did their job. And it was the same at Leicester. I was at the Leicester game and the away fans at that match I think I said at the time, were fantastic throughout. Uh, and given what they're being served up, and given the conflict many of them must feel about you know what positive results mean for this team, I think the nature of the support in the ground is very good. Yeah.
2: Okay. So the team... Had this spell of fifteen minutes or so where it played better, and then it began to mm. began to unravel. You know, it, it, the momentum didn't last really. Um, Southampton should have scored when uh, Socrates. I don't know what the fuck he was doing, but he he was yeah. caught on the ball in the box, and and the the cross. I think it was Cedric um, for Obafemi, and why he didn't just roll the ball across for him to tap it home. I don't know, but, you know, it was a hell of an escape. We should have been behind Mm -hmm. uh, at that point. Um, And then there's the penalty. Yes. Another penalty.
1: Yeah. Is that four or something like that? Five, I I think. Five, wow. Plenty of penalties. Uh, what actually happens with this one? The, the ball swung in from the left, and it's it's Tierney's man's going across him. He just sort of grabs out at him, doesn't he?
2: It? Yeah, it's kind of soft. I think it it's is soft, soft,
1: actually. But I it's, think it's really soft.
2: It's it's the one they get given a lot, you know. And we've had plenty of them given to us in in the past. Um, yeah. So Leno actually makes a save, which is amazing, because goalkeepers at Arsenal don't tend to do that when there's penalties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, And they had a good VAR check, didn't they, to check if there was an offside before the penalty went in. Um, Is that what that was? Yeah, you didn't know that?
1: No, no, because I was in the ground. How am I supposed to know?
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, of course. You know, fuck you paying supporter. Yeah. (laughs) You don't count. Um, Yeah, it was a VAR check for offside. Right. Um, And so there he is. He's saving it. Um, There's nobody really following it in. Tierney puts his his, uh, hands on his head. And Matteo Ganduzi sticks his arm up in the air. I don't know what he's appealing for. Something. He genuinely, he stays, he's on the edge of the box. The, the ball, there it is, saved. Tierney, oh, Tierney's like, oh no. And Ganduzi just sort of stands there in the D and puts his arm up and waves it in the general direction of the linesman. Offside, he's making the
1: VAR signal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, wow. yeah. I mean, I feel for Leno a bit, you know. If he finally goes the right way and one finally saves one, and it bounced, couldn't have bounced more perfectly, mm. could it? Out to, I mean, is there is it possible to attribute any blame there? I mean, is there any more no. he can do to get
2: it away from the goal? No, not really. I don't think you can really blame a goalkeeper. I think, um, you know, he's done his bit. He's just unlucky that it squirmed off him and straight back into straight the path of him, uh, I it? think it is yeah. a little bit unfortunate. Yeah. And maybe we could have followed it in. Torreira and Socrates were, were there to follow it in. but um, Well, ward has
1: got like a five-yard head start. I of mean- course,
2: yeah. Like, I don't think you can really blame uh, the Arsenal defenders no. either because they can't make that up. And even if they get into the box, it'll be called back for encroachment under the new rules. So mm. um, I think what, what's interesting about this and this goal is that immediately Southampton made two changes. They made two Mm. substitutions. So they brought off two forwards. First, Ings came off and Shane Long came on immediately after the penalty. And then a couple of minutes later, they took off Obafemi, and they brought this guy, uh, Gineppo. Gineppo, yeah. He came on. So the goal went in in the 71st minute. Southampton make subs in the 73rd and 76th minutes. Arsenal in desperate need of not just one goal, but two goals wait until the 83rd minute to bring on Willock and Martinelli for Torreira and Bellerin. Mm. What do you make of that?
1: It, honestly, I think it's because they're kids. Uh, and I think that he doesn't want... He's not confident in them, basically. I think if that was a and Mkhitaryan sitting on the bench, <laughs> they would have been on at half-time. But I just don't think... If you look at his substitution patterns... I don't think he quite buys into these young mm. players as much as, as much as he might make out. Mm. Do you um, think he,
2: there's some justification in that, in the way that the, the final few minutes played out? Because Southampton, it would be fair to say, had enough chances to win that game by mm. a considerable margin. And their manager was upset that they didn't mm. do that. Yeah,
1: I mean, there was a brilliant shots Redmond went through on the left-hand side. I think one fell for long in the box. There were, there were there, there was they one, should have sealed it.
2: There was one where Gineppo just put it wide from like oh, yeah. six yards, seven yards out and he just put it wide. I don't quite know, you know, what, what was going on there. But, you know, Joe Willock cleared one off the line. When the rest of our defenders were standing around looking at it, Willock was the guy getting back. Well, I mean, I mean,
1: it, it, for those substitutions and Emery's reluctance to use them, you can say, "Well, Willock saved a goal, and Martinelli was heavily involved in the goal we did eventually score." There you go. Um, but I think that you're sort of right. Emery was he was a bit cautious, <laughs> surprise, surprise, to put them on because I think he sensed and knew his team could not sort of withstand those attacking changes that would leave us too yeah. open and too vulnerable
2: the the attacking might of 19th place southampton how could we ever cope with anything like that
1: yeah and and the, and the and the i suppose the scariest aspect of that is he was right like he was correct in that those changes happened and we could have
2: conceded Three, four goals? Sure, but there was something... I mean, obviously, we were chasing the game, so we were having to push forward and having to take risks. And, and, you know, in part, that comes back to the decisions that he made at the start of the game and the way that he chose to to set his team out at the start. So, mm. you know, look, all in all, terrible um, game management from Unai, Unai Emery from start to finish, it would be fair yeah, to say.
1: I, I, think this, I think this was Arsenal's... Maybe Arsenal's worst performance, actually. This season. Do you think? Um, I think it might be. I I mean, I I know there's a lot of contenders, but to be outshot to that degree by a team who are recovering slightly but have been really struggling, to have 60% of possession and make so little of it, Yeah, I really thought it was pretty poor. I mean, I know there are other contenders, but
2: the um the the shot thing is i think the watford game the second half of the watford game was so bad i don't think the first half of the watford game was quite as bad but this was a consistently poor performance apart from that little 10 15 minute spell as we've talked about but yeah you're right being outshot by the league's bottom side southampton apparently hadn't had more than eight shots in a game you know for their last i don't know since last year or something they've just been brutal um did you see the tweet by by David Wall, who's yeah. on Twitter, at one Wall. I'm going to send this to you now in the little chat doohickey here. Um, boom, boom, boom. And basically, what he's done is he's looked at the shot differential in the Premier League. So basically, it's the amount of shots that you take versus the amount of shots that you allow, Okay, and what's uh, what's yes, the I difference between this. that, right? So yeah. let's say, for example, in, in, in the full season in uh, 2009, 2010, Arsenal's shot differential um, was 276, which meant we took 276 shots more than the opposition across um, our, our 38 games. Mm. Um, and there are various numbers, 251 in 10, 11, 244 in 11, 12, uh, 13, 14. Not a great season. 70 but it went back to 204 then 120 134 last season shot differential 170 Uh, no that was 17-18 Arsene Wenger's last season in charge Unai Emery's first season in charge minus 32 which means that over the course of our Premier League season the opposition had 32 shots uh, more than we did and Mm -hmm. this season so far it is minus 56 I mean Mm -hmm. that is a you know that's amazing. That is well, amazing.
1: It, it's no accident, you know. I, I've said before on here, Unai Emery's final season at Sevilla. No team had more shots against their goal than his Sevilla side in La Liga. So this is a feature of Unai Emery's uh, management. It is not an accident. It is something that he is doing on purpose. Uh, that is not to defend it. It is
2: not working, but. Why? I mean, no, hang on. When you say it's something he's doing on purpose, do you think he deliberately sets out to allow the opposition to have more shots than his teams? Or is it that his teams are set out or sent out in such a way that it just becomes um, self perpetuating that the opposition will have more shots because Emery's teams can't defend? And don't prevent the opposite. I mean, he can't really say, this is what I want from my team, because that would be genuinely (laughs) insane, right? Yes, that would be genuinely insane. So
1: I should probably qualify. I think, because if you look deeper into these numbers, and I have to credit uh, Giant Guna um, uh, on Twitter, who's done this in the Arsenal Vision Discord channel. I was looking at this last night. The, the, the amount of shots, the scale of shots is obviously massive. The proportion of those shots that equate to what would be statistically termed good chances is small, smaller than other mm. teams. So I think that Unai Emery, I mean, basically, because we can all see Unai Emery's Arsenal are bad, right? We can all see that. Um, but trying to figure out specifically why they're bad and what it is he's trying to do is is really difficult, I think. And the best I can come up with right now is that he knows our defence to be so vulnerable and has so much fear around that, that he almost says, well, I'm going to sit off and let the opposition have the ball 30 yards out. They can have it there. And I'm, just, I'm going to protect the penalty box as far as I possibly can. And if they take shots from 30 yards, 25 yards, they're welcome to them. But I'm going to mm. defend the 18-yard line. Now, of course, it doesn't pan out like that because we end up under huge pressure, making mistakes, conceding penalties, as we said earlier in the show. Yeah. And also, when we do go forward, getting caught on the break. So it is not a strategy that is effective, but that's the only way I can possibly imagine that he's allowing this to happen because he's not coming out afterwards and saying, we didn't do the plan.
2: Yeah, he's always saying, yeah, the plan was good. The tactical, um, the way the team played tactically is what I wanted. He said that, you know, fairly recently after one of the, one of the other really poor mm. performances, which have all kind of melded into one in my mind. Um so I think he thinks he's found some kind of mad loophole
1: where you know it's fine if the opposition have loads of shots because they're not going to be high quality shots. Um, but results, <laughs> results do not bear that
2: out no. at all. It's like let the two best uh, attacking fullbacks in the Premier League throw in lots of crosses. We'll just deal with the crosses. Yeah, you might deal with most of them, but eventually you're going to get done. It's it's in it's insane, really. Um,
1: And also, this isn't the two best attacking fullbacks in the Premier League. This is Southampton.
2: Oh, yeah. And And we're at home. And we're at home. And we actually have, you know, one of the best strikers in the Premier League. A very able um, partner for him as well in Lacazette. And, you know, a a £72 million summer signing, who apparently is the kind of player that Emery wanted to make his team more attacking. It It just beggars belief to me that you know if he is aware that his defense is not great and he must be because everyone else in the fucking world is like there isn't this idea of well you know what let's just let's just have a go from an attacking point of view let's focus on that strength that we have within the squad and see how that goes he just will not allow the team to to go out and express itself or to take those kind of risks instead he prefers to to sort of uh take these what he considers um, acceptable risks by allowing the opposition to have loads of shots from poor positions. Eventually, you're just getting weighed down. I don't I don't get it.
1: And do you know it. who's got comfortably the best defence in the Premier League defensive record? Is Leicester City. And nobody... They've conceded eight goals this season for context to Arsenal's right. 19, uh, which is three fewer than Liverpool. And nobody thinks of Brendan Rodgers as you know, a guy who is a defensive coach. Yeah. He's someone who understands that by controlling possession, you protect your back line. Uh, and Emery just does not subscribe to that at all. He's the antithesis. He feels like they can have the possession. We will just guard our territory. But what we are seeing borne out is that one way works better than the other. Uh, certainly for this group of players, I mean... It's just a coach who seems really ill-suited to his squad and his club. Mm. And, And I've seen this example cited elsewhere, but the example of Roy Hodgson at Liverpool, I think is really apt because Roy Hodgson is a very able manager. I think he does a really good job at Crystal Palace. But when you... And he did it at Fulham, and he's done it at other places, international teams, etc. When you put him in at Liverpool, culturally, there was something about the way he saw football that just didn't sit right, and that he must have felt it. The supporters absolutely felt it and made it pretty clear. And ultimately, it just didn't last. And I think when you look at Emery at Arsenal, I think it is the same. I think it's a square peg in a round hole. It is the wrong. Person and personality yeah. for
2: this club. I could not agree with that anymore. Could not mm. agree with him more. He just, you know, is entirely the wrong man for for what our idea of what Arsenal Football Club should be in terms of A, where it is, B, how it plays, C, what it's producing on the pitch, uh, and and D, you know, the ambition that we supposedly have to get back into the top four and, and to challenge for the for the biggest trophies, which, of course, is just some bullshit that they say that they want. They're, they're not acting like that's what they want because they're allowing this to continue. But we'll have some discussion on, on Emery and those above him now in a minute. I want to ask you something um and it's not an easy question to answer um so I'll give you my take on it first um I felt almost disappointed when Lacazette scored and that's a terrible way to feel um about a football club that you have supported your entire life because a last minute equalizer you should be happy that you've got something from the game, even if it's a poor performance, every point is vital. And I, you know, I understand there's like a sort of, uh, uh, a dichotomy here between, you know, wanting what's best for the football club. Um, And I think, uh, you know, we, we could see from last season that every single point that you get is really important in the, in the final, um, the final table. But I, I, I looked at that goal and I was like, "Well, I don't know if that's great for us because, I yeah, I, you know, obviously I thought mm. um, a win or a, a defeat would perhaps force those above Emery into some action." I, you know, it's this weird thing. I don't want Arsenal to lose. I would never want Arsenal to lose. But at the same time, I, I just I couldn't help how I felt, and then I felt really quite angry upset that I felt like that because I feel like I've been pushed into that position because of what's going on right now. It's a weird one. I don't know what you felt and you know, I I looked at Lacazette after he scored and it was almost a bit like no, oh, fuck.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've got to say, there was a chance that fell to Meza Ozil in the penalty box. Um, <laughs> and this is proper like, you know, the moon landing didn't happen stuff where he sort of scooped it over the bar and I He just, there was something in him, I just thought, I don't know how disappointed he is about that. And where when Lacazette scored, there was a really weird reaction. I was behind that goal. Yeah. And it was so muted. And granted, it's because, you know, it's Southampton and it's still only a draw and it's still not a good enough result. But it was almost like there weren't really... Celebrations. I've never seen a reaction to a goal quite like it. No. You know, when you're getting hammered and you score, there are at least sort of ironic cheers, you know, or something. Like, you know, but it, it, there was just sort of a collective shrug, even from the players. I couldn't believe it. Like Lacazette, he put the ball in the net and he looked at the ground. And I think someone eventually got the ball out the goal, but it took a bit of time. And I, at this, in, in the moment, I sort of was like, is this something to do with VAR? Because we'd had such a long VAR delay yeah. earlier in the game. I do think that has a bit of an impact. And I think you saw that in that moment. I thing of like, well, do goals count now? Do we have to check this? What's going on? But I do think, of course, the managerial situation and people sort of almost wanting that to come to a head um, is a factor in that. Yeah. And, yeah. It's I mean, all- the come to a head is interesting phrase, isn't it? The reason, you know, let's say you've got a a boil, if you'll forgive the unpleasant image, you want it to come to a head so that you can lance it and get it better. Yeah. You know, it's natural to want the bad things to reach a point at which they can be fixed or will be fixed. And I think there was definitely a lot of that in the ground. I mean, we can talk about this more, but, you know, I witnessed firsthand a lot of people chanting, about the manager, you know, we want Emery out or sacked in the morning. Yeah, um, that was happening, and and it was interesting. There was a a bit of a dissent. You know, there were people in the ground who felt that wasn't appropriate, and they certainly made those feelings known. And there was back and forth about that, and there was confrontation about that, um, and that is also. Shame that we, you know, after the whole Wenger in out hokey cokey, we're already back to in a situation where Arsenal fans, you know, are kind of as a consequence of events, sort of inwardly aggressive. That's a shame too.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it was just a weird, a weird sensation, a very unpleasant sensation as well. Mm. To to be that either disappointed or to feel so much nothing about a goal and and thinking maybe okay that's a goal and we've got a point but maybe this means we just get more of this next week when we go to Norwich um, mm. and that was I mean, that was
1: just my fear yeah I mean four games you know Southampton Norwich uh, who, what are the other two sort of winnable games Brighton and West Ham is it yeah. something like that yeah I really felt people said to me before the game, you know, what do you think Emery needs from this? And I, I almost felt like he needed 12 points, uh, to be honest, uh, to, to to withstand that period, you yeah. know, and, and to earn himself some credit, and to have fallen at the first hurdle uh, is damning. And I, I think as well, it's kind of striking that. I think some of our worst performances have come off the back of international breaks at a time when we don't have that many international players. So yeah. I think Watford might have been, or was that before an international break? I don't know. Basically, every time we come back off an international break, you think, well, they've had two weeks to work on the game plan. And then you see the game plan and you're like, oh God, I wish they hadn't had two weeks.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I, uh,
2: the interlull was better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me see. Yeah, Watford was straight after uh, an interlull. Yeah. Um, Sheffield United was straight after an interlull. And yes, uh, Saturday was after an interlull. The more Leeds
1: time Emery has, the worse (laughs) he is. And I think that, you know, that's a bad sign too. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there are a lot of bad signs. Uh, On that goal... Because I think a lot of people will have felt the same as you, certainly, or certainly felt that conflict, um, and you could sense it in the ground. The only thing I will say, and I know, I know people think Unai Emery should be gone yesterday. I know that that's what everyone thinks. Surely, if you're the board, that one goal can't possibly be the basis for your decision.
2: Can N- it? No. No, it can't. But I mean, I think it maybe allows them to let it chug on a little bit longer because a defeat is something extra. Mm. This way you could say, well, we haven't lost a game at home this season, Mm. which is true. But of course, you know, we've only won four of 13 Premier League games. And I think, you know, at this point, we need to distinguish between, you know, what we call the board and the people who are actually... Making decisions now because you saw, you know, you, you will have read Amy Lawrence's piece in The Athletic where mm-hmm. uh, the chairman, Sir Chips Keswick, has uh, considered resigning because the people who are on the board, Sir Chips and Lord Harris and Ken Fryer, you know, all these guys who are real, um, whether you like them or otherwise, um, are, are Arsenal through and through. You know, they've, they've grown up um, Arsenal fans and they've represented um, the, the club, but the board, the old traditional board as we know it, as the people who make decisions and, and what have you, are now completely redundant. They don't have any influence. They might have the ability to talk. Or they might have the ability to make their opinions known, but, you know, ultimately no power to do anything. So even if they wanted to sack Emery, Yesterday, they mm. couldn't do it. No. So the people who are allowing this to continue are the owners, KSE, and I think um, Stan Kroenke, but mostly Josh Kroenke. It was made clear, wasn't it, during the summer that that he is the the guy at KSE who is um, in charge at Arsenal, right? Yeah, I
1: believe he was there on Saturday. Right. Um, he's been at quite a few home games this season. Right. Uh, but, yeah. So, so yes, I think certainly KSE and then, of course, uh, the executive team and I think probably principally Raul Senyehi.
2: Yes. I mean, I know we include Vinay and we include Edu and we include sometimes um, Husfami, the contract guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, head of football is Raul Senyehi. It was Raul Senyehi sure. who blocked the appointment of David O'Leary to, you know, the board or the executive committee, football executive committee, as we have to call them, you know, to distinguish them from what, what is the old board. So it's Sanyehi, really, because um, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what the remit of, of Edu's job is. Um, and I know that when they announced it, they did um, they did say that. So just bear with me one second while I bring this up. Um, yeah, it's a
1: fair question and one I've been asked quite a lot recently, what is the division of responsibility between Raus and Edu? Um, I think my understanding is that Edu's, I mean, I know he's a technical director, but it is more on the technical side. So things like scouting, uh, coaching, uh, at, at, certainly at academy level, they all fall under his remit. there have been some changes there already that we know about, you know, with Steve Martin, yeah. et cetera.
2: Okay. I have it here. Um... In his role as technical director, Edu will coordinate the work of our first team coaching group, the academy, and player scouting and recruitment in order to oversee the constant building up and efficient strengthening of our squad. So, coordinate the work of our first team coaching group is an interesting... Yeah,
1: coordinate feels like the pertinent word there. It, it, it's not quite um, yeah. decide, is it? It's, yeah. uh, you know... It, 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 He comes from an administrative role uh, with Brazil. And I think this is a role that's principally about organisation and structure. You know, and he is restructuring the scouting. He is restructuring some of the coaching on the academy side with Pair. You know, I'm not sure that his powers do extend to... Right. hiring and firing a head coach. I, I mean, I'm not 100% on that, but yeah. it doesn't
2: feel that way. No, from- it doesn't to me either. This is what Sanya, he said about him. He said, he will be working closely with Unai Emery and the first team coaches and will play a relevant role leading our football vision and ensuring we have and follow a solid philosophy through all our football activities. So it is a bit distant from that. So whoever the first team coach is, um, Edu would be working with them. I think that's what we we, we can understand from that.
1: It's really interesting because, you know, I've been sort of doing a bit of research this week, trying to find out about Raul Saniehi and um, managers that he sacked or appointed in his time at Barcelona. And what you hear back is a similar thing of, well, it was quite murky. There were sort of lots of people with similar job titles and it's not really clear who did what. And I think with Raul and Edu, there is a little bit of that, Mm. you know, where it's sort of, from the outside, it's quite difficult to delineate. But the buck has to stop, surely, with the man whose title is head of football.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And somebody who does have the the ear of the owner and, you know, head of football means that he makes the decisions. I mean, I, I don't know what it is. If they're sitting around after the games and they're, you know, I presume they're they're discussing what's going on at Arsenal. I presume they're looking at our season. I presume they're looking at um, our position in the league table. What are they seeing that is making them think that Emery is worth persisting with? Why are they tarnishing their own reputations which they are the longer they let this go on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they are driving fans into a state of of apathy where arsenal goals disappoint you i mean what the fuck is that i can't get my head around feeling like that i really can't but you know there's also a a season to save here and it's a tall order i realize but the longer they let it go on, the more and more difficult it is going to become.
1: Yeah, it's not insurmountable. I mean, we've had a third of our Premier League f- fixtures, pretty much, just yeah. over a third. Um, you know, a dramatic turnaround could turn this round. Uh, it's not going to happen under Unai I don't think. There's no real evidence of that. I mean, if anything, I think we're getting worse. Yeah. Mm. Um, So what do they see? I have to say, if they're using as evidence what they see on the football pitch, they can't really see anything there. The results aren't good. And it's not as if the underlying metrics somehow redeem the performances. If anything, they confirm our fears. Of course. Or or suggest we should be worse off than we actually are. So their decision to not sack Emery, I think, cannot be based on the team's performances. Increasingly, I'm of that mind because there's just no argument, is there? There's no No. possible...
2: No, there's nothing that we're seeing on the pitch. There's nothing that he's producing. There's nothing that he's saying. You know, there are stories over the weekend about losing the dressing room and you always take those with a little bit of a pinch of salt. But when they start coming out about a manager and look, you know, I've heard some things secondhand, so I can't say 100 percent if they're true. But but certainly um, what came out over the weekend about some of the dressing room um, feeling towards the manager it, it, it tallies with what? with what I've heard. Um, I was, it was also put to me that maybe um, as a club, we don't want to be seen to be the kind of club that sacks managers willy nilly. Um, And that might be, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is of course ridiculous. You know, it is a ridiculous thing. We're on that managerial merry-go-round and we have to, we have to, um, deal with the fact that we are not going to have another Arsene Wenger we're not going to have a 20 year guy in charge and well yeah I mean
1: we've sat and sacked is you know a strong word but we've essentially sacked one manager in 24 years I mean mm. I don't think another one makes us trigger happy no it doesn't um you know it's all about what follows that uh, yeah I uh, I don't think it could be based on performances on the pitch which it
2: then begs the question of course well what is it based on um, this is the financial that- suggestion isn't there that it costs too much to, to pay hey, him it, off but you know look, when you're when you're putting at risk tens of millions of pounds in Champions League football it's small potatoes
1: to yeah, pay off even the Europa League money like you know that if you if, it, if we miss out on the Europa League that costs us you know a, a tens of millions of pounds so it's a change you would make financially. It's a gamble you would take, especially if you're in a position where you, you know, you spent the money we did in the summer and showed a a willingness to speculate in order to achieve some success, then it doesn't make any sense to not follow that through at coaching level. Mm. I, I can only think that there is, for some reason, something that affects the timing of this, and it is to do with a potential appointment. And I'm not saying there that, oh, they know that in January they can get Joe Bloggs and Joe Bloggs is who they want. I wonder if there is just a sense of, well, well, what, what are we going to do? And maybe they don't want to sack a manager until they have the next person absolutely lined up. Yeah, Because, um, you know, look at Spurs' conduct in the in the international break they sat pochettino and had Mourinho appointed the next morning i mean i think we can all surmise and i think i've read that you know talks were going on for two or three weeks before that so you know that that's the only possible thing that could be holding them back and even then i think you're entitled to say well why don't they know
2: yeah I think we, you are entitled to say that and you're entitled to wonder that and you're yeah. entitled to uh, have some serious concerns that the people running the football side of this football club perhaps aren't quite as smart as we thought they were. They're not mm-hmm. quite as competent as we thought they were. When they talk about having this vision for what Arsenal should be and what Arsenal needs to be in the future, it's all well and good saying, yes, we want this club to be back in the Champions League and to be competing for the biggest um trophies etc cetera, etc cetera. but any cunt could fucking say that that's the easy part the difficult part is making that happen and acting in a way which makes that a possibility or a likelihood but what we're doing is nothing there's Do you a, think if go on
1: so I was just going to say do you think if Raoul turns around to Josh and says I think we should change the manager like do you think I suppose what I'm trying to work out is, you know, where do we apportion this? Where do we, where does this lie? You know, has Rao really got the dominion?
2: Well, I mean, yeah, of course he does as as head of football. He's he's got to be the one. I mean, Josh Kroenke, um, even if he is more involved and even if he is um, uh, attending more games and everything else, he doesn't have the requisite knowledge of football or or managerial candidates or, or mm. anything like that to um, to take control of that side of things that mm. that job has been delegated to uh, to Sanehi and to a lesser extent the other people on this you know football executive committee um, so I think if Sanyehi said to him we need to change the manager I don't think Josh Kroenke would say no. Mm. I don't think he would. I don't think he could, really. Because, yeah. you know, what? What? what's his argument for keeping him? What's his argument no. for saying, OK, no, we should stick with Emery because, you know, he can turn it around.
1: But, yeah, I, I agree with you. I just, when I look at Arsene Wenger's last few years, and I think about, you know, Stan Kroenke extending Arsene Wenger's contract after the 2017 final. You know, there was talk then that on the board there wasn't necessarily a united view as to whether that was the right decision. Well, at least and at
2: least that came after success and winning a trophy.
1: Absolutely. I'm not questioning that. But then and also when Arsene went at the end of last season, you know, Josh's hand in that was certainly played in the media as, you know, an influencing factor. I just, I, I, I mean, I suppose what I'm getting to with this is that I kind of I I just feel that like this is inextricably linked to the ownership of the club, basically. Uh, and I, as much as I do question Raul uh decisions over the over the coaching staff, over the head coach, you know, Emery, mm. I kind of feel like I, I kind of feel, almost feel like he's a red herring. That, that the the ownership thing is more prominent.
2: Well, I think he, I, you know, I, I, at this point for me, anyway. Emery is not the major problem. I mean, you know, if we allow him to continue doing what he's doing, then it's on the club. You know, Mm. I think Emery has shown us who he is and what he does and it's not good enough. We can see that and we've seen it week in, week out and every week it's getting worse and the players look more disconnected from it. The fans feel more disconnected from it. The performances, you know, the stats, none of it, none of it is good enough. So Mm. when you have that mountain of evidence and you allow the man to continue, you know. I'm not going to get angry at him anymore. I mean, he frustrates me. I don't like the way he sets up his teams. I don't like, uh, I don't like the football that he plays. I don't like um, uh, pretty much anything about what he does at Arsenal. Uh, his personality, his character, um, you know, he he just doesn't fit. He's not the right guy for Arsenal Football Club. He doesn't have what it takes to be the Arsenal manager. But, you know, he's not going to walk away and you can criticize him for that if you want. But, you know, no manager really uh, steps down, you know, unless they're, no. you know, they, they, they all think if I just get another result, if I just get a, a second result, I can turn this around. And I'm I'm sure it comes from a place of of wanting to do his best for the football club and wanting to make it better. Like he doesn't he doesn't want to see Arsenal where they are. I'm sure of that. He's just not good enough to make it any better. So you can't you can't um, get mad at him. I don't think you can get mad at him when the bigger problem is the people above him who can see all the same stuff that we're seeing from a, um, a, a much um, a much more focused point of view because they're in it. Yeah. they're in I- it they've got access to everything they know you know we can talk about players being unhappy and maybe losing the dressing room they will know that players are unhappy that there's a you know some discord within the within the squad you know players aren't shy about telling football clubs when they're not happy. They've got Aubameyang mm. who won't sign a new contract because why the fuck would you sign a new contract with all this going on? They've got all of all of this extra information from inside the club that we don't have. Staff at the football club are not happy. You know, they would be uh, far more aware of that than you or I would. But we know that as well, right? Yeah. So the, likewise the problem in is performances. Yeah. Sorry,
1: just to say, likewise in performances. I mean, we look at things like underlying metrics and see problems. I mean, Arsenal own a stats company; they they are aware of that stuff
2: too. We're not smarter than their analytics guys, that's for sure. Okay, so I mean, that's they're the they're the problem more than Emery at this point. Allowing it to continue without just addressing this. Massive problem that we have, which is that a season is is almost beyond us, and it's mm. the end of November.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't hold out really any realistic hope of making the top four at this point. Uh, no, no. I mean, we even are even with a change and an uplift. Like it, it feels like a big gap at this stage.
2: We are nineteen points off the top of the table after 13 games of a new season. And, I, you know, I don't and you don't and nobody listening to this expected Arsenal to be challenging for the title. That's complete, completely unrealistic. Hmm. But to be 19 points off the leaders, who I know have had a fantastic run and everything else, but, you know, we're also, whatever we are, 11 points off second place. And second place is Leicester City. You know, we are closer um, or just as close, I think, to the to the relegation zone as we are to the top four. Like, what the fuck are they waiting for? Because every week. They they are costing us points by not doing something about it, because, we you know, we joked about it, didn't we? Or we said it on the last podcast or the one before. It's like, well, if they let him continue, they're putting points at risk. And so it proved. And if they let him continue into next Sunday's game against Norwich, you know, we haven't won away since the opening day of the season. They're basically saying we're willing to risk those points for whatever fucking weird um, stance they're taking or that they have in their mind about not changing a manager, which is one of the things a football club should be willing and prepared to do when it gets as bad as this, and certainly well before now, in my opinion. So it's Raul Sanyehi that's to blame for those points lost on Saturday for me. The head of football, the football executive committee, drag as many of them into it as you want. Josh Cronkey, they're the ones who are presiding over this fucking mess. So while I'm not a fan of Emery, I just don't see this being on him anymore because it's it's them. They're the ones that can, A, put a stop to it, and B, it's their job to make it better.
1: Yeah, as you said yourself, I don't think anyone doubts that Emery is trying to get results. He's probably trying harder than he's ever tried. You know, he knows mm. desperately that he needs them. He needs to try and turn this round uh, for his reputation as much as anything else. So, uh, you know, you can dislike what he does, but I don't think... You know, it's sort of not his fault that his limitations are his limitations, you know, and there are people with the power to change things. Mm. And I guess when Arsene Wenger was at the club, he was kind of this unsackable figure, you know, and and it was sort of easy to an extent to kind of absolve some of those executives and think, well, you know, that's not really a decision that's in their power to make. Emery
2: hasn't really done anything to earn that status. Um, No, but you're right. Isn't that... Isn't that the whole point of putting in place these modern structures at a football club where, you know, yeah. you've got your executive committee and you've got people who are in charge of transfers and you've got a technical director who's looking after the club's playing philosophy and recruitment and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you have a head coach. And the reason you put those structures in place is because it it's easier to make changes when you need to make changes. So, mm. It's difficult to sack a legacy manager like Wenger who had control over so many areas of the football club. But it's not difficult to sack a head coach because all you're doing is just taking out this little slice and replacing it with another little slice. Yeah. It's like changing an ink cartridge in your printer. That's what it's that's what it's like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It should be like that. And I you know, I look back at the summer and I think you know, there was a lot of unhappiness and ultimately, Raul and co kind of came up trumps to a degree. Certainly, they produced a set of signings that most fans were happy with, with you know, whether or not that's sort of born mm. out or not. The key differential, I think, between the summer and now is that in the summer, the one thing you have that you don't have now is time. There is months without a game. And if you haven't got it right at the start of the summer, you've still got two months at that point to change it and fix it. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter if you get a player in for the start of pre-season or in for the first game. It doesn't have a huge effect. Time now is actively costing us points. So we cannot afford to move as slowly as we have moved as a club. We Mm. need to be more decisive and yeah it's funny isn't it I I keep referencing Arsene Wenger and apologies for that but you know he was kind of ridiculed for his indecision Um, but you know currently indecision or a lack of decisiveness is, is what's hurting us in the post room.
2: Yeah, big time. Big time. Uh, there were a number of people who um, wondered if, given the fact that Emery was appointed during the recording of uh, our podcast, <laughs> uh, the live one, you might remember when we were yes, all I thinking do. about Mikel Arteta, and then he was announced, Josh Craig, for example. I sincerely hope Emery is sacked during this podcast just as he was hired during a previous one of yours. But so far... That doesn't appear to be the case. I haven't had any text messages or my phone is not buzzing
1: about no, that. Um, no. Uh, shall we call it part one? And maybe yeah. by the time we come back for part two, he'll have gone. That's <laughs> what happened
2: the last time. Remember? Yeah, exactly. We just finished the part one. We interval having crucial. We are having, a, we were having a, a nice drink. So let's go and get a cool, refreshing beverage or a cup of coffee or whatever it is. Um, we'll come back in part two and maybe maybe the world will be a brighter place. Hopefully so. Welcome back to the ArsCast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at ArseBlog. On the ArseBlog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the ArseBlog. And also on the ArseBlog Patreon Discord server, which you get access to if you are an ArseBlog member. On Patreon, you can be if you want to be. Patreon.com forward slash blog A couple of little things to get through, James, just before we get into mm-hmm. the questions. First is the Santi Cazorla boot competition that we ran mm-hmm. last week. Santi Cazorla's uh, signed boot here. It's an Evo Speed Puma left boot, black and gray with a white bit and a green stripy bit and, you know, some stuff on it. Santi has signed it. The question was, um, who did he score his first goal against? It was, of course... Liverpool Liverpool in a 2-0 yes. win at Anfield. Lucas Podolski also scored and I think that was the day that Diaby played that game that everyone that went game. to. Oh, yeah. Why couldn't he do this all the time? Why I wish he could do this all the time.
1: We still see highlights of his performance in that game on mm. Twitter and stuff. And yeah, because all was brilliant that day. I think he might have set up Podolski's goal as well as scored mm. himself. So With I believe his left foot
2: Mm, well, it doesn't matter for Santi which foot mm. it is. Um, the winner, I've just gone through all the emails here, and I've picked one at random. The winner is Joey Halliday. So well done to you, Joey. I will be in touch. I'll get your details, and I will get that boot signed out uh, or sent out. Um, and thank you to everybody for uh, sending in your entries. It's uh, its uh, its what? What is it? It's a competition, and you didn't win. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I got a little bit tongue-tied there because I was thinking of the next thing that I was going to ask you and then I had a terrible vision in my mind okay. because you um, you were going to keep us up to date with what was going on with Ian Wright in I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And I just remembered uh, that I sent you a text last night saying, did Wrighty just drink a load of pig cocks? Yes, he
1: did. Mm. Uh, I mean, in what can only be interpreted as a metaphor for Arsenal's current form, the man was forced to drink a pint of blended Pig's penises. Um, that's, that's that's not right. <laughs> it's not right. Like it's whatever is Ian wrong, wrong, wrong? No, yeah, but it's whatever, not.
2: whatever about like okay, you've got to crawl through the bush and you've got to, you know, maybe slither through a, a cave of maggots or worms or something. Mm. Taking a load of pig mickeys and sticking them in a nutri bullet and making them and drink.
1: That them. is the law of the jungle, Andrew. As we all know, not when right. you live in the jungle, you must drink the pig penis smoothies. <laughs> that is how the jungle works. That's what Tarzan himself
2: lived on. I, I saw a picture of it. I didn't, you know, obviously watch it, but I saw a picture of him where he seems to have some of this horrendous concoction on his mm. face, and he's got the got the thousand yard stare of a Vietnam vet. Yeah, Is he, he ever going to be the same again when he comes back?
1: I don't know. He had to do some other pretty grim stuff yesterday. I mean, the tragedy of it all was that the reason he was drinking the pig's penises was part of a competition to win a roast dinner for for him and his camp. Right. And he did his part and won a roast dinner for someone else, but he was one of just three of the 12 who won't get a roast dinner. And I mean... The devastation was etched all over his face. Oh my Uh, god! I I think he's struggling with the the lack of food. To be honest with you,
2: well, who wouldn't? Who whoever let him down there? That's you know that's that's disgraceful. I hope you feel terrible about yourself. Um, Yeah,
1: I mean, I don't know if he would prefer to be doing what he's doing or watching Arsenal. To be honest, I think it's sort of a toss up. To be honest, Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, But uh, he, he look, he's acquitting himself very well. I fear that the public will keep voting him to do stuff horrible stuff like that you say crawl through tunnels with worms in because he's very entertaining when he does it oh. um, but uh yeah hopefully hopefully he has a bit of a, an easier time over the next week or so
2: all right the other thing I just wanted to mention was um the 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 the, the full rendition of the Lewis Capaldi song um which has oh, gone, yeah. which has gone down a storm and when you sent it to me um I listened to it, and the first thing I was going to reply to you was like, uh, Your wife is away again, is she? Um, but you just, when uh, when I was talking to you, you just uh, said, Yeah, Camille was pretty confused. That's just so funny.
1: <laughs> she I was just, in the bath, I think, at the time. <laughs> I just can't um, imagine. So she, yeah. Actually, afterwards, she was like, what were you doing? I was like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) You'll find out soon enough. But it was a one-take wonder. I mean, you can't be doing multiple recordings. I think I could do that a bit better, actually. I don't think my neighbours
2: would permit that. No, no. Yeah, seek
1: it out. I mean, it's... It's a sorrowful, mournful song. So it's quite fitting, really, for what's going on.
2: Well, you nailed it. One take wonder. Um, Congratulations. It was great. You can find it on the ArsBlog YouTube channel uh, if you like. So, look, let's get into a couple of the questions. And this one comes from the Discord. It's from Isaac, who says, What would be the potential negative consequences of failing to achieve Champions League football for next season? It seems obvious that we'd hire a new manager and some of our best players would want to leave. But would there be any other likely the unpleasant outcomes that we're not aware of yet
1: I mean they're sort of unpleasant enough the losing all our best players one's not great is yeah, it Yeah, no. Um, I think it would have serious repercussions for certainly Aubameyang and Lacazette uh, and their future potentially the future of someone like Hector Bellerin basically any of our players that might be in demand elsewhere I think would have to consider a move or consider their futures mm. um, financially I think it would obviously impede us uh, in terms of our expenditure in the summer transfer window. I just think as well, there's a bigger thing, which is kind of the status of the club. And, you know, something we've not talked about on this show is, is what's happening on the other side of North London. And I think there's a reason we're not talking about it, it's because it's so hideously unpleasant. But, you know, it's... Unveiled a new stadium they've unveiled a new manager who whatever you may think of him is a big name and they have won away on the road at West Ham and you know potentially you're looking at an upturn there and I just think in terms of sort of where we're headed in club and the perception of Arsenal from the outside another year out of the Champions League it would be very damaging, very damaging indeed. But, yeah. but that's the likelihood at this point.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, look, the, if you look at the Premier League table, they're still below us. I think they are. They but are, if as you were are United, to, yeah, but uh, yeah, United. But if you were to, if you were to say, like which, um club is more likely to have a good go at making the top four from this position at this moment in time it's them and that is really unpleasant it was quite interesting I was thinking on whatever day it was um maybe Sunday or some day before the weekend anyway when they appointed Mourinho it just felt to me like the kind of move to make them more attractive to a potential buyer and that's a, a little fear that I have that maybe by getting this box office manager in, like he's a box office cunt as well, and I didn't want him at Arsenal. Um, but there's no, there's no doubting his um, his reputation and and everything else. You know, he does bring that to them, and it, it just occurred to me that maybe this is this is a move that's coming, which might see Tottenham. Be sold to somebody with the kind of deep pockets that we do not want to see Tottenham sold to. You know, that would be hugely worrying. Yeah, that would yeah. be terrible for us. So I mean, and
1: it could happen. I mean, there is a lot of talk that Spurs mm. are sort of essentially being fattened up for a sale. Um, so yeah, that that is a frightening prospect. I just think the the the, the size of the club and the grandeur of the club is being sort of gradually diminished by our presence in the Europa League or potentially not even in the Europa League I think we genuinely have to think about that as a prospect this season now
2: yeah yeah Um, I think some of the other real world consequences of not being in the Champions League or even having no European football would be affected you know throughout the club there's a lot of people People that work for Arsenal people you know Arsenal is a massive organisation now there are hundreds and hundreds of people working there and we know that the Cronkies have already put in place cost-cutting measures you know behind the scenes it's one thing to you know to splash out 72 million pounds on Pepe great but you know behind the scenes there are you know there are other issues and I think if Arsenal continue on this slide, continue on this um, uh, trajectory without halting it, without you know um, getting ourselves back into um, Europe's top competition. There will be people who lose their jobs, mm-hmm. ordinary people like you know players. Who gives a fuck, really? You know, um, players will always be all right because they're they're wealthy enough to to deal with it. They'll be fine. I'm not saying fuck the players. By any means, you know, it's important we hold on to our best players and bring in better ones. But, you know, I think if, if it goes wrong for a footballer, he just goes to a different club and earns a massive amount of money there as well until such time sure. as he retires. So it's different for people who work in, you know, administration or back offices or, or, you know, support staff or, or all of those things, you know, they could be at risk as well, so there are real-life consequences for that. But I do agree with you that that the prestige or the the perception of Arsenal as a big club, the shine is well and well, well and truly off now. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the longer it goes on, and the longer it takes to address it, the more we establish ourselves as a kind of also ran. You know, because yeah. even when Liverpool were going through their struggles, and you know, it's not long ago Liverpool were struggling, but they always had their sort of. European history to sort of bolster them. You know what I mean? Yeah. They won the Champions
1: d- League in that period. Yeah,
2: you know. we don't have that. We don't have that. You know, we're a club that last won the title. It's gonna sixteen
1: 15... It's yeah, going to be 16 years, years this year. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, know, I mean so the, you know, it's funny. We spend a lot of time looking at the modern Liverpool as something to emulate. But I think that, you know, there is also a lot of fear there that we are kind of the 90s... Liverpool you know what I mean that we are the sort oh. of Roy Evans Spice Boys Liverpool mm. uh, cup finals and sort of vaguely mid-table finishes at least they had lovely white suits they did have those nice white suits to be fair um, the next manager must wear a white suit on the touchline that's my <laughs> <laughs> insistence um, this is from Sandy uh on Twitter And Sandeep says, oh, actually, do you know what, Sandeep? I've said that and then I've realised we've sort of covered your question. I will read it now because I've come this far. Um, Everyone wants Emery out, but no one questions whether we have the resources, brackets, money to make such a change. Why and do you think we have the money? And if not, do the board deserve some pity?
2: No, they don't deserve any pity. Fuck them. Okay. Do we have the money? Of course. Yeah, I think we do as well. Of course, you know we we um, yeah. It's of course we do. Of course, but, I don't. And I don't, if we
1: don't have it, we could certainly get access to it.
2: Yeah, it's not that much. It's not that much. No, I don't. If, think.
1: if a player broke a leg and we needed to replace them in January, we could do it. So we could do this. That's my opinion. Yeah,
2: essentially, what does it cost to sack Emery? A, a a low, a low level footballer from the Swiss league, like a, mm. a El It would cost an El Nenny to sure. sack an exactly. I
1: Amory. and an arm, an arm, and an El Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think we can afford it too. Well, in which case, let's do uh, this question, which I actually meant to do, which from Andy Brook. Uh, Andy says, have we overestimated the squad? Lots of us thought we had a great summer and barring some obvious needs, thought we had a top four squad. Is there now a realisation that this squad is a mid-table one, aside from Emery being awful?
2: I still think this is a group of players that is capable of far better than we're seeing. I, I, I think there are issues. Certainly mm. there are issues. There's, there's, a, there's a big problem at centre-half. And there has been for a long time. And you might question whether the money we spent on you know, someone like Pepe in the summer might have been better spent on a central defender, if you could find that player. But even aside from the gaps in the squad, um, I just think it's been so badly managed that they're they're not getting anything like what they're capable of um, in terms of in terms of performances, you know, and and we can talk about the tactics. We can talk about the systems, the formations, the way that players are are deployed. But there are other issues as well, you know. Um, how can Torreira play his best football when A is not played in his best position, and, and he's unhappy about that? You know, the Shaka situation is is a shambles as well. We've had the Ozil situation. Um, I, I think certainly any squad you look at over the years at Arsenal you could say it can be improved but I I don't know that this is if this was the absolute best that, that anyone could get out of the squad we'd be able to say yes this is this is a mid-table squad but I, d- I don't believe that it's impossible for somebody else to come in and make it better with the players that, that we have right now
1: No I I definitely think that's correct you know that they are not playing at the maximum of their potential I think that there is a tendency a slight tendency at the moment to be like well because the manager's bad there can sort of be no real examination of the squad and I think it's always a little bit from column A and column B. I think this squad has got more problems, maybe, than we are prepared to admit. I think there are areas in which it's excellent, like, in terms of striking talent, fantastic. We've got Aubameyang and Lacazette, brilliant. I think the full-backs are strong, you know, Tierney and and uh, Bellerin. I didn't even mention Pepe in the attacking third, Mesut Ozil to consider, I suppose. But I we've got a good goalkeeper, but I do think when you look at the actual spine of the team, the centre-halves and the central midfield, I think it is way off. Like, I think it is not good. And, you know, I'm not uh, absolving Emery of blame for that, but I do think that it's worth talking about. Like, the centre of our defence is terrible. And I actually think our central midfield is terrible, even if there are players within that collection that we think are good, you know, Arsene Wenger kept saying he had his most talented squad, but it didn't make for his best team. And I think even though there are talented players, there are just sort of chronic issues with balance. Um, So I, I think for us to be a Champions League team, both those areas really, really, really would have to be addressed. But if the ownership don't want to pull the trigger on sacking a manager at that expense... I don't necessarily see them pushing the boat out to get the players we need in, in those areas of the park.
2: Yeah. Well, here's a question that we get um, all the time. It's, you know, if and when they finally mm. decide to make a change, maybe in, you know, three or four weeks' time when we've got one point from the last nine, maybe then they might do it. There's a, There are a lot of questions about um, who it should be. So um, Adam Topku, who's at... Ad underscore ski says, "Do you think we have a realistic uh, chance of tempting Arteta?" Um, the other name that was doing the rounds this uh, weekend was was Allegri. Um, Max. Traharn, who's at Max Traharn 2 says with rumours swirling about Allegri as a replacement for Emery do you think it would be a good appointment personally I get the impression that Allegri would be Unai 2.0 and I'd rather just give Freddie a go to the end of the season I know it's really difficult to um, you know to nail your colours to any one mast on this but um, what what do you think of the names some of the names that are doing the rounds
1: yeah I mean I I suppose this is sort of part of the problem is that none of the names uh, sort of light a fire in me particularly I've got sort of concerns over all of them for different reasons if I take my like rational hat off and just talk about it emotionally um, as purely a fan I feel like there's such a strong disconnect between the club and the supporters and the team and the supporters that I really do just want someone to come in who can rebuild That connection and sort of, you know, communicate well and sort of demonstrate a way forward so that people feel Mm. part of the journey, part of the process. I remember I was reflecting on it this weekend. I remember quite early in Jurgen Klopp's reign, he drew a match at home at Anfield. And after the match, he went out on the pitch and was sort of doing his thing with the Didn't he get
2: all the players to line up and sort of do a kind of like... um, Possibly, yeah. We've, you know, one of those where they all link arms. and Something like
1: that. And everyone was like, everyone royally took the piss, right? Because they were like, they drew and they're celebrating it. And I probably joined (laughs) in at the time. But this weekend, uh, when I was at the Emirates Stadium, I was reflecting on that and thinking, feeling very differently about it, I suppose, and feeling that obviously what you 're seeing there is people who mm. feel like they 're on side and feel like they 're part of something and who recognize that you can 't win every game, and some that doesn 't necessarily mean that you know the journey or the bigger picture isn 't worthwhile yeah, and I feel very envious. About that, that feels a million miles away at Arsenal at the moment. Can you imagine if you know we got the last-minute equaliser against uh, Southampton and then Emery's out on the pitch and there's this sense of you know us against the world, collective spirit. I mean, that isn't really going to happen, um, but that's what I would love to see. And as someone who has a season ticket and goes to every game, wow, I'd love to be part of that and feel. You know, I'm jealous, I'm jealous of that. Mm. And so, when I think about a new manager, I do think about a kind of totemic leader who I think people would really get behind. And it's difficult for me to put a name even to it, but that's the profile. And Allegri's CV, rationally and coldly, is fantastic. And I know, you know, that will garner him a lot of support, but it's difficult for me to sort of explain it. But I, I just don't feel that. Connection, if you you know what I mean.
2: Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I did ask um, James Horncastle, who covers Italian football, about Allegri and his English, because I think one of the problems that we have with with Emery is his English or his communication. um, It is a problem. It is a factor. Mm. It's not you know the major overriding factor, but that's part of why a. I think there's a confusion among the players about what they're being asked to do. Um, B, in the media where he can't really explain himself as as fully as he might like. And and C, we find it very difficult to connect with him because of that. Like, we don't know what it is exactly he's trying to say. And when we look at what it is, we're sort of going, well, what? The, this is garbage. Yeah. This is incomprehensible garbage. What are we supposed to, to take from this? Um, so James said that um with regards to Allegri he probably understands some english but isn't a confident speaker mm. so i wonder if that would be a factor when the you know the the football executive committee come to making the decision do they need somebody who the the, the fans can immediately connect with or that the coach can uh, you know the coach can come in and explain what it is he's going to do and explain his ideas and explain you know all of that very clearly in a way that people can get behind Now it'd be up to him to prove that with what he does, you know, with the team on the pitch and everything else. But I do feel like that would be an impediment to the appointment of Allegri for me. I I think that I think that will be something that they would think of. Not to mention, you know, his his salary and everything else.
1: What, What about what about alternative names? Then is there anyone who who you would think of above any other? Um. I mean, sorry to cut across, having just asked you a question. Sure, <laughs> but um, I've actually not listened to it yet. But I know that on Friday's AskCast, Filippo um, Clare yeah. ventured the name of Patrick Vieira yeah. in there. Yeah, and uh, I know that the immediate comeback to that is that that's a kind of, you know, that Vieira's is not having the best time of it in Liga at the moment. Um, and you know, I think people—well, Roy, necessarily...
2: Roy, Roy Hodgson did badly at Liverpool, but well everywhere else. Well, that's
1: it. That, I mean, that is kind of it. And I know that uh, you know certain managers are just su- suited to certain jobs uh, in terms of being like a a figurehead,
2: a personality.
1: Uh, and, yeah, I mean, and also someone who is a good friend of Edu. They have maintained a relationship mm. post their playing careers. Um, I. I do feel like his name would be in the mix, actually, even though he doesn't necessarily have the CV. Um, I think speaking from that fan emotional perspective i would definitely have his name uh, on a list of candidates
2: yeah we had a question from tom stratton who's at tom stratton who says what should the what should the profile of the next manager be my feeling is focusing on names rather than qualities delivered emery over a less heralded candidate what are the qualities we should be prioritizing this time to avoid making the same mistake so you know obviously Mm. I, i think um You need somebody, or Arsenal right now, need somebody with a clear footballing philosophy, an idea of how they want the team to play and the ability to instruct and coach a team to go out and do exactly that. Uh, You know, I think this, we've gone too far the other way from Wenger's um, we will play our own way and that's the only way we will play to Emery's we will play in a way which will be dictated to by the opposition, regardless of how menial or meagre they might be, we will first and foremost look at what they could do to us and then try and play around that. So I think we've gone too far.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And also I I kind of think maybe that was sort of a necessary process that in some ways all managerial appointments are kind of responses to the problems of the last one Mm. um you know and that you know wenger maybe was too obsessed with uh playing our own game and then so we reacted to that and appointed someone who was the antithesis and now we've realized that was too far maybe we meet somewhere in the middle and that's actually the correct space to operate in it's just taken us a process to get there um Funnily enough process being one of the words that Unai Emery uses most frequently but I, I do think that one interesting question is I think there's a perception that Unai Emery I've had a lot of people say oh he's used to managing smaller clubs or you know clubs that aren't as big as Arsenal mm. I don't think that's necessarily correct in that I think that there are big clubs where he might do a good job, where the sort of footballing expectations and identity is different. You know, I I felt for much of last season, Unai Emery and Maurizio Sarri had the wrong jobs. You know, they were the wrong clubs. And if they'd swapped, they might have been better received by their fans. Um, But it does raise an interesting question of sort of would Arsenal take a gamble on a manager from a smaller club now you know is there a risk of would people feel like oh we're putting someone with a small club mentality even if there's someone who's quite promising but they've not had a chance yet at the top level i mean there were a lot of questions uh i saw on twitter and in the discord say about someone like eddie howe for example yeah who has been at bournemouth for god knows how long and his achievements there are are, I think objectively pretty excellent in terms of taking Bournemouth into the Premier League and keeping them there but
2: it's a very different sort of job to the job at Arsenal, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. And it's sometimes, you know, you think back to transfer rumours that we have had in the past where you go, Arsenal are going to buy a defender from Southampton. And you go, where is, where is Southampton, really? I yeah, mean, is, yeah, that, yeah. is that where we should be buying players for? And then Toby, Toby Aldevaro goes on and becomes one of the best Premier League centre-halves at Tottenham. You know mm-hmm. so I wonder if there is sometimes a bit of snobbery in the way that we think about things and and who the potential candidates are. Uh, you know uh, it's a vague thing and it's a weird thing and it's 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 hard to quantify but but uh, you know having gone down this emery rabbit hole and having lost sight of of who we are as a football club in in a in a fairly significant way I do feel like we need somebody who understands what Arsenal should be. And what it should strive to be? Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? So yeah, that's why I think it's interesting. We have Vieira's name out there because you know he was part of the very best Arsenal that most of us have have ever seen in our lives. I, mm-hmm. I feel like you know someone like Arteta is being thrown around as a candidate. Um, maybe doesn't have quite the same experience as. Um, as Vieira in terms of success at Arsenal, but did come into a club that was, uh, you know, really on the brink of um, having the arse fall out of it after that 8-2 and that terrible summer with Fabregas and Nasri and all that kind of stuff and and came in with Mertesacker and, and had a really big impact um in in both stabilizing the club, helping it achieve top four season after season, winning trophies again after so many years of not winning trophies. So I do think he is an interesting candidate in that regard. Um, And I see people say, well, it's mental to countenance the idea of appointing somebody who's never managed a game. And I get that. On a logical level, I get that. Um, But Emery uh, managed lots of games. and It didn't work with him. So... It's just—it's yeah. just really difficult to say this is the guy we should go for because I think he's going to do blah blah blah. It's gut feeling kind of stuff,
1: it, and and it's and it, there is luck involved, isn't there? Like yeah. you, you can make a rational choice on I think this guy is the right guy, but. Sometimes it will work. And I think most of the time it kind of doesn't work. You know, what is a successful managerial stint? I mean, not that many managers are extraordinary successes. They're all trying to get it right. And to a certain extent, you just sort of keep pulling the lever until you get the one who is right. Mm. Um, Certainly that's the modern football way anyway. I mean, yeah, it will be fascinating to see if and when Arsenal do eventually make a change, what route they go down I think is an interesting candidate as well I, I've said that several times I do think our sort of capacity to get him depends entirely on what he knows about his future at Manchester City um,
2: or what he knows about how Arsenal is being run yeah
1: Maybe that could be another another issue. I mean, that's the thing. One of the things about Vieira is that he's sort of gettable, isn't he? I mean, it's not like it'll be a big step up for him. Um, I mean, there are kind of marquee managers like Ten Hag or you know, uh, I don't know Nagelsmann. But I think you know our capacity to get that sort of coach, I think, is quite slim. It is really. particularly
2: I- mid-season. But the reality is, is that we. I don't think we're 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 not in a position to wait until the end of the season to get exactly the right man, if you know what I mean. We 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 have to we have to try and get something out of this season. We have to. Yeah. And and like while we I think we'll accept that a top 4 finish is going to be something of a a long shot, a very very long shot. There is still a pathway into the Champions League via the Europa League Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. Um, I think I had a question here actually about that let me just see Um, Gary M who's at Gaz MC10 says is the club now just keeping Emery because of his Europa League record with the fact that winning it is probably our best shot at Champions League football for next season I mean I, I don't know that that really can be a consideration because I don't know that your domestic season can go as badly as this without it impacting your European season as well So then it's a question of, you know, if you're getting a manager in, do you get somebody with a track record of winning something? Um, Or go with somebody who who you think has the potential um, to do it? And I I think, you know, I know we talked about money earlier and can we afford to pay Emery off? Um, And obviously we can, but I do think the financial side of things as well will have an impact on the manager that we're willing to hire because we're not going to give a four-year, con- three or four-year contract to Allegri on the kind of money that he would demand, given the the track rec- track record that he has, because that's a big payoff if it doesn't work out. So I think there'll be a financial element in the decision that we make about you know who we bring in.
1: Well, and also if they're already at a club, you know, we might have to pay a significant chunk of change to to get them out, uh, and that might be something that they consider. I mean. There's a lot of talk about a potential caretaker and En-W- Enwe Emery on Twitter says, Hey guys, do you fear replacing Unai with Freddie slash Bold would not give the squad an adequate lift or bring a new manager bounce because they may be perceived to be start- part of the status quo slash old regime and not something fresh?
2: Potentially, certainly certainly, with regards to, to Steve Bold. Um, because, yeah, you know, been he's been part time. of the, the the first team squad or was part of the first team coaching staff for a long time. But I don't think realistically Steve Bold is is in the frame. I think he's happy doing what he's doing with the under-twenty threes. And I you know, I if, if he was asked to step in for a couple of games, maybe he would do that. But I don't think he would be um called upon as, you know, caretaker manager till the end of the season. Mm. Freddie I guess it depends what the reputation he has um, among the players is. Um, You you probably have a better um, view of this than I do because you're literally inside the stadium. But quite regularly or quite often uh, in recent times, we've seen Freddie on the sidelines giving instructions to players, players coming over to him looking for instructions. Is that Mm. something you've noticed
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fairness, it's not something that's sort of an insurgence against Emery. No, it's no, no, no. Emery no. knows about oh, uh, yeah. and you know is comfortable with. But I think particularly with the younger players. I mean, if 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 Reece Nelson or Bukayo Saka is coming on, it's Freddie giving them instructions primarily on the touchline? And I have to say, this weekend it was Freddie jumping up and arguing with the fourth official and getting very involved. I mean, we've seen him get a yellow card this season, haven't we? For his yeah. For his frustrations, but yeah, he, he's very involved. And in the warm ups, he's very involved. He tends to work with two or three players, and before the game in the dressing room, you know, different coaches will be sort of uh, set up to talk to different players and detail their instructions. So not everything comes through Emery, and people feel there's an individual approach. And Freddie's a really big part of that, and I think he is popular, and I think he is liked. I mean, you know, if, if Unai Emery is sat during this podcast presumably freddie is the man who would take immediate charge i mean i've just seen a tweet from david ornstein saying that you know they the club expects emery to be in charge on thursday so oh, i don't think we're Jesus i don't think we're uh, i don't think well listen at least we won't have to re-record the whole podcast that's the small mercies eh
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um the club so that, expect him to be in charge what does that mean
1: to be fair, I've paraphrased. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Check yeah. Okay, what he okay. actually said. Uh, David Ornstein, Sir so, um, Emery in charge. Thursday, as things stand, which in fairness can mean something or nothing, can't it?
2: As things stand, yeah.
1: I mean, I, I don't. Do you think he'll be sacked this week? I don't.
2: I don't. Well, I don't, but I still, it fills me with despair.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, I get that, but I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, it is interesting, you know. I think that we won't hear, uh, <laughs> to borrow their phrase, similar noises from the club to what we heard after the Leicester game. I think they, no, they, reala- they, they must keep their
2: fucking mouth shut now.
1: Yeah, I think they must realise the degree to which that backfired. Mm. Um, so that will lead to a, a, a degree of uncertainty, I suppose. But you know, I don't know what we're we talking about. Something, something terrible. <laughs> something awful yeah um let's have a look like blah, 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 blah. who, uh, we haven't talked about the we care to you statement, did you have any mm. thoughts on that?
2: well, maybe it'll prompt a a response, maybe um, mm. I'm not sure though, um I mean, look, I think as as people who care very deeply about this football club, um, I'm not talking simply about we care, do you, or anything like that. I just mean as fans, um, how long can you sit back without saying something when mm-hmm. things are going as poorly as they are? Whether they pay any attention to it, uh, I'm, I'm not sure.
1: Well, what about this from Roger Barra, who says, what is the best and most productive way for us supporters to show our dissatisfaction Uh, and indeed fear of what may happen if nothing changes?
2: Um, It comes up a lot, that. It does, and I feel uncomfortable answering that question because it's not for me to tell anyone how they should support the club, how they should behave, what they should do. You know, you see people talking about, well, you know, fans should get together and boycott. And and that kind of stuff. But like, um, I'm in no position to tell anyone to do that. If some of the if some of the the, the groups, um, you know, like Red Action or uh, uh, Black Scarf or or, or mm. you know, groups which are there as representatives of fans want to go down that road, well, you know, that's that's up to them. But like mm-hmm. me as a guy with a podcast and a website, I can't tell anyone what they should do. Like I can't tell people don't go to the games. You know, you've you paid for your tickets. You can, you can do what you want. I think we'll see just naturally as this continues, people will make their feelings known by not going to the games. And that is the biggest marker of fan- discontent that there will ever be like we Mm -hmm. can moan all day we can moan all day on social media and we can talk about it on podcasts or videos or whatever it might be but if Arsenal play a Premier League game in a half full stadium that tells you the way fans are really really feeling I mean what do you think the attendance is going to be on Thursday (sighs)
1: Apparently the club expects 40,000 there. I I would be shocked if they get that many.
2: I'm just trying to see. The lowest attendance uh, at a at a, I <laughs> like this, Emirates Stadium. The lowest attendance at the ground is believed to be 25,909 for a match against Bate Borisov in the Europa League on December 7th, 2017. However, the official attendance for the game is recorded as 54,648. Um, yeah. I, I think be, we'll
1: give that a run for its money.
2: I think it will, won't thing. it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Frankfurt, maybe a little bit more of a draw than... And Bate Borisov. But I think it's gonna be a half empty stadium. And I know I mean, you can dismiss it as Europa League, but you know, yeah. that this brings us back around full circle to, to why we need to be in the Champions League, because if it was a Wednesday night and Arsenal were facing Barcelona or, you know, one of Europe's other big, exciting teams, that would be a full stadium.
1: Of course. And I actually think even if the first team were going well in the Premier League and there was a sort of buzz around the club, you know, there were plenty of times when those sorts of games, Carling Cup games, you know, were full, weren't they? Because people Mm. wouldn't see the next generation and people, uh, I suppose, you know, still felt pretty positively about what was going on. I think you're right. Empty seats speak for themselves. I think they, to a certain extent, did for Arsene Wenger. Um, I think the same could happen here. You know, I thought James Bench actually made quite a good point on Twitter, where he said it's easy to say fans should boycott, but unless you're paying for those tickets, do you know what I mean? It's sort yeah. of like it's costing you fifty quid a game to boycott, almost. So, you know, it's not as straightforward as all that. I can understand people wanting to get some return on their money, but um, I do think that just generally there will be that sort of apathy that will creep in, and that will that will happen against Frankfurt and probably in the in the home game that follows. So. Yeah, uh, uh, some sort of coordinated pro- uh, protest is very difficult to do, isn't it? And yeah, and people have such split feelings, as I witnessed firsthand uh, on Saturday, people have such split feelings on what is appropriate within the stadium and what is not, that I sort of, I, I don't really want to get into kind of, you know condoning that and, you know, advising people on what they should do. Um, It's an individual thing, unfortunately, and that means it's very difficult to coordinate. But things like the We Care Do You statement, I think, you know, if you feel that that is emblematic of your feelings as a fan, I don't think there's any harm in sharing that and showing that, that, you know, a bit like that petition that very quickly racked up signatures in the summer it's a way of demonstrating sort of the scale of dissatisfaction quite swiftly
2: yeah yeah um we have a, a question here a non-emory related question from cluck the rotisserie chicken on the right. discord um And he says, we soon have the January transfer window open, and while we potentially have some players leaving, do you think we'll have any incoming players, and do we need it? I think this is quite an interesting thing um, to consider, because we're basically, what, a month away, just over a month away from the transfer window opening again. Hmm. If you do bring in a new manager... Oh, yeah. They'll They'll want something, won't they? So, is there the... Possibility that this decision is being delayed, delayed, delayed so the club don't have to spend in January?
1: I mean, that's an interesting question. Mm. I, uh, I would hope not. I mean, we refused to spend in January last year beyond the Denis Suarez thing and I think it hurt us ultimately. I think it arguably cost us top four. So I think we need to... If, back, if we get a guy in and he says, I need this, you need to back him. You need to do that. Um, and I think it's inevitable that a manager might look at this squad and say, I need a centre-half now. Yeah. Uh, and it would be very difficult to argue with that, I think, based on what we've seen so far this season. And I, as I said earlier in the show, I still think central midfield is a massive problem in this squad. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, do we need players in January? Probably, Are we likely to get them? I think it depends on if there's a new manager or not. Certainly, if it's still Emery, I think then we can sort of assume they've sort of written off the Premier League campaign. And I don't think that they all spend money in that instance.
2: No, I mean, they they must know that, you know, he's a dead man walking. So you don't give that guy money to buy players that a new guy might not want, you know? I mean... I, isn't the structure, though, set up in a way which, you know, basically is the club buys the players now? True. And and whoever's head coach has to deal with. Well, maybe the club feel an incoming
1: head coach might do a better job with yeah. your David Luiz or your Lucas Torreira or whoever it is. Um, you're everyone. You're everyone. You're anyone. Uh, yes, possibly. I mean, it, it it is just sort of a... We're on a bit of a hamster wheel, aren't we, at the moment? You know, it's Mm. kind of... We're kind of spinning our wheels here. um, And as we do, we're getting further away from where we want to be. Yeah. Uh, I desperately hope there's some brilliant plan that I can't see. (laughs) But it's very difficult to maintain that level of faith, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is is difficult. Mm. Yeah. and, and the funny thing is, like, that is what supporters want. Supporters, want, I think supporters ultimately want to believe in their club. Like, I talked about that thing of sort of, you know, celebrating after the draw, but that's because they believe in the direction. And you want to be able, supporting, you know, we don't want to be making the decisions. We want to believe in the people who are making them. Yeah. And that's... You know, that's what's difficult to maintain. I think that we spoke about this last week, but that trust is, has been so eroded. And now, you know, it's opened up all those questions again. Mm. And I think I think maybe we don't realise that as fans, that sometimes we're happiest when we just trust people. I mean, we, we made a sort of habit of it for 15 years saying, Arsene knows, and we were pretty content. The idea that you've got people running the club who ultimately you believe in is actually very satisfying as a supporter and makes the whole thing less stressful for you because you're not trying to enact changes. You're not demanding they give the captaincy to somebody else. So you're not demanding they pick this player in his correct position because you believe in those people in those roles. I think that's comforting and that's like what supporting should feel like, really. Um,
2: So... Final question, because we're going to have to call time on this because I've got lots to do today and we've been going for nearly two hours. Right. Um, Do you believe in the people that are running Arsenal right now? Or if that's a bit too binary. On Mm. a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is not much belief at all and 10 is all the belief in the world, where would you stand right now on if if I made you pick a number between 1 and 10 what is it well
1: look it's the prerogative of the supporter to vacillate and after the summer you know I would have been high on that scale I would have been where would you have
2: been it. on the summer you know let's say after the summer start of the start of the new season we brought in these players they've talked a good talk there's optimism there's hope where how high up the scale would you have been
1: uh, maybe like an 8
2: I think. I think I probably uh, would have been a a seven, but, you know, it's a a good seven, a solid seven.
1: I I think I would have been an eight, and I think that was contingent, and I talked and wrote about this a lot, on the idea that, you know, even if there were doubts over the manager, I felt like there was signs that there was something in place that made a change in the head coach Mm. sort of easy and something that we could survive quite straightforwardly. Uh, um, And, and, you know, I felt that that's what would happen if necessary. Now, um, obviously some of my doubts and concerns have been opened up, I suppose I've dropped to... I don't know. Not as low as some. I'm not sort of like... I'm not in a position where I think, you know, Don Rowell's actually a clown and he doesn't know anything. I'm not in that place. I guess I'm like a
2: a four, maybe. But it's a big drop. It is a big drop. Eight to four, that's like... If there was a hit single they go the other yeah. way though don't
1: they but yeah. but i but i you know i'm a fan and my my emotions mean that things change all the time sure. and if, if, if they pulled something out of the bag and i was like oh why didn't i see that's what they were planning this whole time they just needed to wait for that to happen for that to happen you know i reserve the right to go back up to seven and i want to i really want to because then i feel like i've got a club mm. that i can believe in and support i mean what about you would you would you put a number on it
2: Right now, I would be three, mm. and I was I was thinking about two. I think mm. it's one thing for your football club to have a manager who isn't doing what you want him to do. I think we can all rationalize that and come to terms with that because that's a, a performance thing. But I think the worst thing for me over the last number of weeks is coming to not a conclusion, but becoming increasingly fearful that the people who are running the football side of Arsenal are just as bad or as performing as badly as as the manager. Like the manager mm. could be terrible, but if you have faith in the people who are making the decisions, then it becomes less stressful. Whereas over the last few weeks, I've become much more disinclined to believe in Raul and and um, the work that he's doing as head of football because as, as I said earlier he is presiding over this mess he is allowing it to continue so while I want Emery to go I've got less faith than I did in the people who are going to make the decision to, to replace him if that makes sense yeah
1: I completely understand that. And I think you're... I share a lot of those fears as well. The, the, my only... And listen, we had this conversation earlier in the season about sort of optimism. And ultimately, my optimism was ill-founded. But it, it is in my nature as a fan. I, I, I was positively surprised in the summer. Mm. And I I I could be positively surprised again if what comes out of this somehow makes sense in the way that the summer did and I I really hope that's the case my fear is that any outcome will still have been too slow too late and too costly yeah that is my big fear um and yeah that's that's mm. a worry because yeah I, you know yeah we just we just uh, we just want reasons to f- Feel good and feel positive, and for this yeah. to feel fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think the sooner the club acts on that, the, the better mm. it will be towards returning to that place. Yeah.
2: Right. Well, look, it's not there at the moment. Um, who knows when it will be again? Hopefully sooner rather than later. We're going to leave it there because we've been going. We will have another Cast extra for you on Friday because we're playing Thursday night uh, against uh, Frankfurt. Are you going? Frankfurt. You'll be one of the seven or eight people there. Yeah, I'm not working so that will be in
1: my hands I guess if I go or not. Something to think about genuinely. I've got yeah. to find the motivation. I imagine I will be there. Wow. Um I invariably am but yeah
2: you could do that um, wonderful thing of stretching out across a number of seats and having a, a nice lie down <laughs> lie while down. you watch the game yeah <laughs> anyway. absolutely alright well look uh, thank you as ever for listening sorry we haven't been able to uh, cheer you up sorry that during this podcast there hasn't been a revelation from um, from on high that's made most of the podcast redundant might, might come um, shortly after this but it doesn't seem like it we'll uh, we'll catch you on Friday thanks for listening
1: bye bye